Hello, welcome to Louder Than Words, the pod that's about ideas that improve lives. I'm delighted to welcome today on the show three distinguished public historians. Donna Graves, public historian from California, Sarah Lloyd from the Institute of Historical Research in London, and Alex Green from the Department of History at the University of Essex. So our focus on the show today is how history is being deployed to regenerate cultures, increase understanding, how we can bring people together in new forms of collaboration and action. So Donna, Sarah and Alex, thanks very much. Welcome to the show. Lovely to have you on. So could I just ask each of you to paint a little bit of a picture of this thing about public history from your perspectives, just uh, give us a little bit of an overview to bring us into the stories that we're going to be hearing about. Um, Donna, would you like to start from your side in California? Sure. So for the last approximately 30 years, I've been developing projects with communities in California that focus on places, places where the stories of these communities weren't well known, weren't even visible publicly. But by working with communities and researching the history and working with artists and cities, we've been able to reclaim those stories in place, whether it's through preserving really modest buildings that you would look at and not know it had a really rich story or creating new artwork or new urban design to help everybody see those stories and to knit them back into the fabric of our public realm. So you're making those choices of areas that are less understood and then trying to develop a process to bring that to wider public understanding and engagement. Yes. Often I have found a story that I'm really excited about and I'll connect with the community and and the municipality and develop it. Sometimes people find me and say, we've seen other projects you've done and we'd love to work with you as we think about our history. Super. Well, Sarah, what about you? So I come to this as um, somebody who trained as a historian of Britain in the 18th century. Um, But I've always been really interested in how the past is used in the present day. So how stories or histories from the past are taken and they become they feel very real or very relevant or they're used to um, explain the present day or some course of action. And it's always struck me that um, there is no simple relationship between the past and the present or between the past as we might understand it as historians, and what we want to do with it in the present. So I've just been endlessly intrigued by this. And so I have been for about 10 or 15 years involved working with community groups, a bit like Donna, um, in the sense of helping people or working with people to tell the stories they want to tell about themselves, their communities, their place, their sense of where they are in the world. And... I've also, as a result of that, got really interested in the sense of storytelling. So if you're an academic historian, you never use the word story. You always talk about histories. And then now, if you're working in this sort of in this public realm, actually, the emphasis is about story. And there's something really interesting in that movement between those two words and how we might what we might think, what we can learn from thinking about the past as a series of stories people tell. Super. I'd like to come back to that because that's something that intrigues me as well. Splendid. Um, Alex, uh, a bit about public purpose, because that's been a focus of a lot of your work. Yeah, thanks. So 
I kind of came into academia rather late. And I think it was that having that other career really made me think about the presence of, a his- of history in public life. So I had a 10 years doing kind of policy and government relations type work. And as anyone who listens to the news will know, um, policymakers love a good historical reference. It's all about how they make sense of the world. Um, you can't really talk about Ukraine. You can't talk about Brexit um, you, without talking about history. So that's really what got me intrigued about um why historians might want to feed into those kind of processes or be part of helping policymakers, helping organisations, helping the public, helping communities make sense of the past in the present. So that's how I kind of came into academia um, rather late. So my work has really been about trying to work out how can historians be historians with public purpose? And that could mean working with policymakers. It could be mean working with journalists. It could mean working with community groups in the way that both Donna and, and Sarah have described. So in more recent years, my public purpose has been directed not with policymakers anymore, but with, uh, with businesses. So working with archivists to work out what are those records about the organisation tell us? How do they help us think through what the business is going through um, at the moment? Um, But I've also been involved over the last couple of years with um, a local voluntary and community sector organisation trying to tell the stories of their experiences during COVID. So I really resonate with what Sarah said about stories. And another word we might use is testimony. I feel that these community organisers who were working in the small charities in the area around our university, um, homelessness shelters, women's refuges, um, support for LGBTQ communities, diaspora communities. They wanted to tell their story. They wanted to give testimony. So it's also about a kind of accountability, I think, as well. So public purpose is really flexible in that way in all the ways in which stories, histories, testimonies can be valuable for the present. That's very helpful and interesting. So within all of those three ranges, there's there's the idea of finding out stuff, particularly what people within locales know um, that is often ignored by other more powerful structures and processes um, uh, and bringing those to to life, as it were. And then as it trying to improve circumstances in some kind of way. I mean, there's not always a direct link in that, but there's an aim to to use that knowledge, information, emotion about place in in a particular different way would that would that be fair i mean donna you've worked on on i was thinking in particular uh-huh. the japan towns of california which we and there uh, you've worked, worked also with asian pacific islander communities um these are people that are often just ignored or not known about or only a little kind of a line in history or two um but then in bringing that forward something different can happen. All of my work, whether it's about Asian Americans or LGBTQ historic sites or Richmond, California, the city I've spent the most time in, it's a low income, formerly heavily industrial, though still industrial community in the Bay Area that I helped start a national park in called Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park, the longest name in the national park system. All of that work to me is a form of social activism. It's it's trying to use the past to create a present and a future that's more inclusive, more just. And in a place like California, that's so multiracial, so many immigrant groups, recent immigrant groups, telling this this plethora of stories is a way of making room for this very diverse place and making um, the way we tell history a multivocal 
process. So I've, I see everything I do as some form of social activism in this realm. So I think you've all described the idea of what I might call platforms or hubs or places where, which could be physical ones or, or online ones as, as ways of bringing people together. Sarah, tell us a little bit about kind of heritage hubs and this idea of creating the context to help this process along because it hasn't happened as it were on its own, particularly if you've got disadvantaged or or silenced groups, um, uh, which is many, many of which you're you're talking about. One has got to do something to kind of help that come forward a little bit. Is that is that fair? And how does that work? I I, I really like Donna's concept of uh, multivocal histories and that idea that that one wants to make space, make room for alternative perspectives. And you know, it's not either or. It's not this person's story or somebody else's, it's an and. And I think we underuse the word and. It needs to be and, and, and. Um, but I think it's, so I think that very often it's important to create opportunities where people can hear, listen to other people's stories and can share them. And I think that's why place is a very interesting con uh, context in which to do this, because the evidence can be literally there on the ground. And so there is that notion of layers of histories of human presence of different communities, different experiences and so forth. So you can start to sort of build up those patterns and those stories and tell them. Having said that, there is no guarantee that the existence of those multiple voices will actually translate into a more equitable, uh, multi-voiced, more, you know, more open history. So this is where I, I think that and this might be a slightly more pessimistic note, but I think it's one to pay attention to. I think we have to sort of think about the, we're going back to this notion about what are the purposes of these histories or these stories. And I've, I really, again, I really like Donna's notion of social activism. I think all three of us are very much committed to that agenda. But there are other ways in which we can see stories being used to silence other groups, to, there's a politics, there's a power dynamic and a politics in all of this. And, when you mentioned a minute ago, Jules, about what happens if you create a hub, you bring try to create context, you try to bring spaces where people can share things. One has to be very mindful of those power dynamics. So I was involved once in a project, a community project, and they had done a whole series of projects. And then they came on to doing one about more recent arrivals in the area, um, which had happened in the 1950s. This was an area that had a very, very long history going back to medieval times and earlier. And it was really hard for some members of this group to leave on one side this prior claim they felt they had to the place, which was they felt they were connected to this medieval past that the more recent arrivals did not have. And that's what I mean about these high, these value, these value judgments get in. Because all, all stories, all selection of historical evidence is based on some sort of judgment about what is in and what is out, what is relevant, what is not relevant. So I think, you know, I, th I think that it, there's a lot of aspiration, um, particularly around public funding in the UK, about what history might be able to do in terms of heritage, community building, creating a sense of identity and belonging. But I think it's, as in, as in many, many things, it's never quite as straightforward as the aspirational statement might, might promise. Well, um, Alex, tell us a bit about the 
the public purpose work that you've been doing with with businesses. I think John Lewis's is one example, the John Lewis Partnership Heritage Centre, and that's that's a specific, as you say, kind of testimony and and records of of people within that particular business but it, it it can be wider than that or it can be very much smaller isn't it um that there's as a way of revealing stories and it and it kind of strikes me that in all that you're saying um a, a popular view for example sarah you've worked on on uh, first world war um as as part of your expertise is people often make the mistake of, of assuming well we know all of that now we shouldn't we move on as it were to other things and actually the point is that those places people stories reveal something about the human condition which of course is relevant to today as well and i'm just looking for that link across alex your thoughts yeah sure so um one um area i've been looking at recently is to look at the kind of records of um of staff, so thinking about the kinds of people that came into organisations, and 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 particularly the same wave of migration that Sarah just alluded to. So, uh, the kind of which we loosely term the Windrush generation that you know that came in um, from other parts of the of, of the um, of the former British British Empire, and people exercising their right to move within it, and um, hugely enriched a number of organisations, including. Um, John Lewis, Transport for London would be another um, example, and trying to understand their experiences. Now, these are, um, are people who have left very little trace in the in the formal archives, but we can access their experiences of coming to work in the United Kingdom, of trying to get employment uh, and promotion, um, trying to get housing through um, collections like oral histories. And that's really relevant today for a lot of contemporary businesses because they're getting increasingly focused on equality, diversity and inclusion. So they need to kind of understand what the experiences of these minoritized groups were like historically within those businesses to be able to have a sense of who these people were, how they can make their own hiring, promotion, um, particularly to managerial positions, uh, more inclusive. So actually companies like um, Unilever would be one example I've been working with recently. They really want to understand what those patterns are, who these people were, um, to try and reclaim those histories um, so that they can be a more sort of equitable and a more inclusive employer today. So I think that's a really good example of how a history of this now 70 years ago is actually seen as directly relevant to the business today and a kind of informing how they see themselves and how they want to portray themselves uh, to their staff, to potential staff, but also to their to the customers and wider public. So those histories are relevant to the business and uh, and to the people that work there. And do those businesses do they have an instrumental view of the research and in, in as much as they're just interested, or they think that this will help them become better citizens or businesses in some sort of way? For some of that might be a kind of monetized way in due course. But I'm interested in how you then link the the knowledge that's developed to those specific processes that you've you've described that turn that into something. I mean, it's not the sole use, but I'm just interested in their how they see that. Hmm. So I think um, the way I've been working has been really helpful. So I've been working with the business archivist. So these are already, you know, historical professionals have a really good understanding of the records that they hold, but they also understand the 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 present day business context. They're really useful partners because they know the historical material, but they also know how to connect that into the um, the concerns and priorities of the present day business. So that, that's been a really useful way in to trying to understand that because every business is different. But um, I certainly would say that for the businesses I've worked with, they are genuinely interested in what they can do because by understanding kind of the ways in which they've operated in the past, they can they can then use that to inform what they're doing in the present. I think they um, 
there's so much potential there. If we think about the records of the business of being an asset that's completely unique to that business, these are stories that are not held anywhere. So why would you not use that? Why would you not use this unique asset to to inform what you're doing? So by working with the archivist, it helps me make that case. They're a, they're a champion for the historical record. They're a broker between the university and the business, but also just fantastic people to work with uh, and a natural kind of alliance for a historian to have as well. So I guess if you were taking one of those kind of large businesses with several thousand employees physically distributed, but they feel as though they're part of the same culture or places as we were just talking about if you added on the numbers of people in families as well you're talking about kind of fairly large or medium-sized towns for example if they were all living in one place and yet this is a a culture that's not seen as a as a specific place-based one because it it isn't and yet when you're in the the operation it feels very much of a similar set of norms and cultures which of course can be changed if somebody wishes to try to do that yeah it's about belonging really and feeling that you're included and valued that you're part of a community and that as you say that might be a globally dispersed community in the case of a you know a global corporation it might be a micro kind of street or community level um you know association but both can be valuable. In fact, people are members of more than one community at one time, you know. So actually being able to work at these different levels, I think helps people feel it's human. It's a form of our humanity, isn't it, to be connected to each other. So I think the more we can do to help foster and encourage that sense of belonging through a connection with the past, um, the better. That's very helpful. Uh, could could we come back then to story as 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 we've talked about as well, as you were saying, Sarah, it's it's, it's a key part of of history and yet often hasn't been picked up specifically as a a form of narrative, as a form of connection, a way that that we make sense of the world. And and could we just kind of reflect on that a bit? I talk quite a lot about the climate crisis. I'm sure we all do in various ways. I know you're specifically working on that, Donna. Um, and and I find that there's there's not really any need now to talk about how bad it is most people kind of get it and those who don't are probably not going to get it anyway because they're kind of actively denying but those who do get it actually don't particularly want to be reminded how bad it is or how bad it could be they quite like a, a kind of positive story about what they can do in other mm. words it's about agency it's about the social activism that you were talking about and and i'm interested how we create stories that that are looking forward not not in a kind of Pollyanna way, um, but in a way that actually says, well, we recognise that, but now let's think about what we can do about it. And and we can't save the world today, but we could take a step in a particular direction. I wondered if you wanted to explore that a bit, Donna, from, from your side. Yes, yes. I had my climate crisis epiphany about five years ago and realised that, yes, it's happening now here in Northern California. And uh, what I had assumed was the appropriate way for me to respond, which was to go to marches and donate to the best candidates and talk with people wasn't enough. And I started thinking that as a public historian, what am I good at? What do I have command of? And story was the the answer. And as I started to see how people who are involved with historic places were thinking about climate change, it was all through kind of scientific and technical language. This building that's 300 years old is going to be subject to sea level rise. And when it hits this number of centimeters, 
rise, you know, this is going to happen. And I personally find that kind of message doesn't land or is overwhelming and kind of paralyzing. And I started thinking that the way I work with the Park Service, which is to tell stories about people in places, is another way to capture the imagination of the public. And that the Park Service itself would be a really profound vehicle to, to try this work. So I convinced them to let me work with a couple National Park Service staff to create a toolkit called History and Hope, Interpreting the Roots of Our Climate Crisis and Inspiring Action. And it's a new way for the Park Service to talk about climate change. They've also relied on scientific data and technical language and thinking about harnessing the stories of the places they steward um, was a new a new path for them. Most people think of national parks in the United States as these grand landscapes like Yellowstone or Yosemite, but over two thirds of the national park units are about historic sites. And actually all of them hold cultural resources because humans have been living in these landscapes forever. So I'm working with the Park Service to develop ways to use stories of place to talk about in more detail, how did we get to this spot? What are those choices we've made in the past that led us here, whether it's about using natural resources or exploiting other people or paving it over? Um, and what what can we draw from those stories that will help us create a more just and sustainable future? So it's got that forward-looking piece of it, Jules, but it's also really rooted in the stories of these places and how they came to be the, where they are today. I'm very interested in this notion of hope. I'm glad you raised that. I mean, uh, Rebecca Solnit wrote to uh, from your side, um, a fellow Californian um, wrote about um, hope in the dark and how it comes from not the limelight, because the limelight shines on the powerful point that you were making, Sarah, but it comes from the shadows. And, and somehow you've got to actually look in the shadows to see mm -hmm. what's there, but also bring people forward in some kind of way. So that notion of hope, I think, it, and perhaps as a historic zeitgeist at the moment coming after now almost three years of, of pandemic and effects that that that's something that genuinely affected every single person in the world and we could do with a bit less anxiety and stress and yet the big stories are all about anxiety and stress yeah. because they're big stories you know whether it's social inequality or whether it's uh, um, democracy or climate crisis or biodiversity they all can be quite quickly cause your shoulders to slump and you think, oh, I could give up. <laughs> Why should I do anything? So we need that kind of inspiration, don't we? Alex, what, what's on that? Yeah, I was just going to say that I think perhaps before hope, um, in many of the contexts that I'm working, is accountability. So it may it may be that we have we can look towards hope, but for the groups that I interviewed as part of our COVID oral histories of the voluntary community sector is what comes first is actually a kind of reckoning. And they're also history as a role in terms of ensuring that those histories, those stories, those testimonies are used to hold power to account because there were, you know, policy failures at every level that had, you know, catastrophic impacts in some cases on, on, you know, ordinary people, the most vulnerable people in our community. So I think hope is a great aspiration, but I think it's built on accountability. And there, I think historians also have something to offer. Mm, mm, very good. Sorry, Donna, you were going to come in and then I'll come to Sarah. Oh, no, let Sarah go ahead. I'll hold oh, on. Sarah, carry on then. We're picking up that thing about I, accountability, reckoning, stories. I think it's, and it's, I, I was just going to add to the, um, 
word accountability, recognition, because to be accountable, you have to actually recognise what is there. And it's often hidden in plain sight. And I think one really interesting thing that emerges from these very different, all these different public history settings or history in public settings um, is the, rec the recognition that, that we should all be making of community knowledge and expertise. And I think that is something that professional historians are actually um, sometimes quite surprised by and are not necessarily programmed to notice, but really need to notice, which is the knowledge that is absolutely residing in communities and in these overlapping communities, intersecting communities. Um, so in terms of the ways in which the scholarship of history intersects with stories of place and so on. It's not a one-way transfer from the realms of scholarship into, um, mm -hmm. you know, sharing material with communities. It's actually about listening to what knowledge is already in those communities. And I think that underpins this whole process around recognition, accountability and hope. Because it's about agency, as you said at the beginning, yes. Jules, it's about agency and um, allowing agency to take place, um, I think, is is very, very important because for many people, for many communities, doing history is about being able to say, I was here too, and looking for recognition that that's, that, that, was, that, that happened, that they have, may have been left out of various people's reckonings, but actually they were there. So this is going beyond, far beyond thinking of people as sources of information or knowledge, wishing to get the information from them to write about it or to do something with it. It's a much more interactive process and, and hopefully a transformative one as well, that they transform us as, as, as kind of discoverers and writers, but they also transform communities as well. That would be a, a kind of hope. Donna, what, take us into a little bit more detail of uh, one of the uh, other projects in, in California that you've been working on, to get a little bit of kind of richness and flavour. Well, I'm thinking about that, the, the concept of agency in people's testimony. And I'd done work for a very long time in Richmond about that city as the biggest shipyard during World War II and a place that drew people from all over the United States brought them out of the depression and gave them good paying jobs building ships in this Bay Area community. Um, it turned Richmond from a primarily white and European immigrant city into one that had even more diversity, much more African-American, Latino. But when I would interview people, it was the story that was said in the past that they didn't command. I mean, they were proud to tell that they were part of it, but there was no sense of agency. And likewise, with most of the Japanese Americans I've interviewed or worked with over the years about the story of Japanese Americans, all Japanese Americans on the West Coast being rounded up and imprisoned during World War II and the communities they built up and down the West Coast being decimated. Um, it was, again, a story that they were subject to for the most part. It was when I did a project finally documenting LGBTQ history in San Francisco, 
that I had the chance to interview dozens of people who saw that they were making history, who were choosing, whether they knew the outcome or not, that they were going to fight to change history, to create a different future. And that brings me back to a Rebecca Solnit quote about hope that I'm just going to paraphrase here. But she often says that we don't know the outcome. And to presuppose that it's going to be catastrophe or apocalypse, as some of us in our darkest climate fear moments and vision, is hubris. And that we should recognize that any one of us or any group of us can change the outcome. And so we might as well try. Um, and that in my dark moments, I cling to that. I don't know the outcome and I might as well try. Mm, very interesting. I mean, to, to, to use another kind of metaphor, we're all in the dark forest and there isn't a, there isn't a path. And, and we're going to need lots of different paths to get out of each of these major crises, which is that point you make about making history is taking a step and making a path. I do find when I talk to lots of young people, they feel very kind of oppressed by all of this. They, they are taking action, but they they feel as though it's all it's all a bit kind of hard, really. And and why don't you lot who created this problem actually solve it? And I, I just use this little phrase to say it's not your job to save the planet because there's so much being put on people when you create that content. It is everybody's job to take a step and take another step. So I think that circles round again to agency and social activism and using, as you all three have been doing, using history to reveal things that, that we hadn't seen before but also create a different form of potential action. Is that is that fair, Alex? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you've mentioned young people. I think it's good to talk a bit about the role of students in this as um, as agents themselves. I mean, I think one of the the the, you know, the best things we can do as educators is giving students opportunities to to take their agency, and then that's often very place based um, as well. So if we think about the kind of the idea of kind of dig where you stand, I mean, why not? you know, empower students to work with our local communities at that micro level to, to make history. So um, I've just started teaching a module that that, that um, matches um, student groups with, with community groups and organisations that want to kind of make some history. So yes, they may feel overwhelmed at the kind of global scale, but actually there's huge good we could, they can do working in this kind of collaborative mode, co-creating projects with, with communities. And one of which is Less than a half a mile from the campus, in a in a um, you know working class community that where a lot of the students live. So there is the overwhelm, but there's also a huge amount of value and and power and agency to be had. Uh, you know, for our students working with these communities. So it's probably one of the most rewarding things I do as an educator is is to be involved in those kind of projects. And rewarding for the students as well, I imagine. Hugely. I think to be able to come out um, having built those relationships, often quite close, you know, it can be quite emotional at the end of a project as they kind of hand over what they've produced um, alongside those groups and to have built kind of lasting connections. And I think that connection of place and past and story and community is a really powerful one. And um, what I often find is that students end up volunteering longer term because because of that um, kind of transformative experience. So that anchor to place, I think, is one powerful response to overwhelm and uh, that happens at larger scales. Very good. And your thoughts on that, Sarah, as well? I think that this sort of passion and enthusiasm and, you know, that notion of the, the real sort of joy that can come from 
exploring things and working with people and and discovering something that is new to oneself, if not new to everybody, I think is really important. And I think that also drives this agency and also can be an ingredient of hope. So the emotions that Alex is describing, I think, again, are really important to recognise and to to value. The other thing I think is, is, is interesting to pay attention to are questions. I think very often we think of stories as being about content. In a sense, they're about what happens at the end of the question. But my experience sometimes of working in community settings is it's the questions people ask are absolutely amazing. And they're questions that nobody has thought to ask before. And the only reason, the reason why they're asking the questions is it becomes out of their own experience. And people who do not share that experience don't think to ask that question. So I think that one aspect that is really important to value in terms of the uses of history is not necessarily to focus on answers, but to focus on questions. What is the what is the question we need to ask and that we need to pursue and what will emerge and what emerges then? And different people can ask the question and construct the responses to it. You know, it's a sort of, it's not necessarily a a linear one person or one group process. So I think that, yeah, paying attention to the questions people want to ask is not a preamble. It's absolutely intrinsic to the process. And it's that which also drives some of this, the imagination, which connects up again with this enthusiasm and passion and that old sense of amateur as the love of things the love the love of discovery or the love of the of the material that people are exploring i think is is very important time to draw things a little bit to a close then so i I wondered whether uh, you'd all been talking you've all been talking about turning history into something looking forward which is I think, natural to the discussions that we've had here. But perhaps people listening will always think that history is about that thing in the past rather than turning it into the forward um, looking and and creating different social relations, opportunities, emotions, excitement, as you just described. Could could I just ask then what about priorities for the future for public history? It might might be kind of too open-ended, but what, what would you pick as two or three big hopes for the next half decade or decade when it comes to public history, history with a purpose, as we've described, history as social activism, the hope, the the accountability, the reckoning, as you said, Alex. Um, could you just pick a couple of things that you think are priorities and we'll kind of draw things to a close at that point? Uh, Donna, do you want to have a, have a start? Well, I have two things that I would prioritise, and one is... Um, the continued focus that I'm going to maintain on the climate crisis and the ways that our past not only created this moment, but can give us tools and knowledge and connections um, to help us face it. The other is, I think all of these places that we care about actually have many stories and especially in communities that have been marginalized, there is such an impulse to to stake their claim to that place. And that can result again in a univocal story when a place actually has many stories. Um, There's a building in San Francisco I've been working on for quite a while. It's the Japanese YWCA Young Women's Christian Association in Japantown. It's an amazing building. 
um, the community had to fight to get it back after it was taken away from them during World War II. And they are justly proud of this place as an emblem, a really important emblem of Japanese American history and women's history. Through research, I found that that building was the site of the first convention of the Matachin Society, the first national gay rights organization in the 1950s, and in the 1940s was a center for civil rights organizing by Bayard Rustin, who was the main leader behind the 1963 March on Washington and a queer man. And I've been working with the community to think about how do we tell all these stories in this place? How do we make this a place where people can see across racial identity to um, commonalities or be inspired by the succession of histories that this one little building holds. So for me, the priorities would be how what's history's role in addressing climate change and acknowledging the multivocal stories of places. Fascinating. Uh, Sarah, over to you. Well, I'd, I'd sign up for both of those from Donna. And I would add to my manifesto is I would just, I've also got one thing. I would really like us, us, whoever we are, I would like there to be greater acknowledgement of how the past still shapes our thinking on contemporary issues and issues that we think are about the future. And I think Donna's work has really brought out um, in relation to climate change, how very dominant ideas about um, extractive colonialism, um, the notion of natural resources as something to be extracted and exploited for human use, has dominated thinking in um, in the West, um, in the global North for a long time. And we still, we, those are still our thinking blocks. And we need to, first of all, acknowledge that they're there in order to address them and come up with something new. And we, you can apply that pattern of old ideas that are very insidious, insidious and keep it sort of keep replicating themselves and hiding to all sorts of things, including issues around race, class, gender, um, all the in, in all forms of social inequality and global politics and so forth. So I've got well, only got one issue on my manifesto, but it's probably quite a large one. But that's a good one. That's great. Thank you. Um, Alex, over to you. Yeah, so a, a long-standing kind of um, mantra for me is always about stories, not just numbers. So I think a lot of what feeds into, I think Donna alluded to this before, is that um, there's a lot of belief that kind of numbers give us kind of certainty and assurance. It's the only kind of information or evidence we need. But as I think we've discussed today, stories are what bind us together, what allow us to express ourselves and to connect to other people. So I think, you know, for governments, for businesses, for communities for charities is to demand demand those stories and collect those stories and um and for universities to be responsive to that demand to help to help those stories be collected and that leads to my second one which is we need to think really differently about how we build archives if we think of archives as knowledge banks we need them to hold stories and testimony that wouldn't have otherwise be collected so Opening up archives, I'm, I'm really keen on working with archivists to think about different kinds of stories and different kinds of evidence that can be collected and really locating those archives within communities so they can be mobilised by those communities and not just be resources for for researchers. So um, stories, not just numbers, would be my, my final call. Fantastic. Well, that's been really, really fascinating and full of insight. Um, thanks so much. Uh, that was absolutely fascinating, full of insight. Uh, Donna Graves, Sarah Lloyd, 
Lloyd, Alex Green, uh, public historians, um, fascinating discussion, um, and thank you. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can.